Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts and minds upon those words, Lord, be acceptable in your sight. You are crucified, risen, reigning, coming again, Redeemer. And we need your help. Bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We know that repetition helps us learn things, right? <laughs> so, I believe in God the... Father. Yep, Almighty. Almighty. You didn't know how far I wanted you to go. <laughs> Our Father, Maker. who art in heaven... I'm sorry, I skipped to the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> I'm doing a bunch of things. The Lord bless you and keep you. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I mean, you sang that a bunch of times, right? Why do we teach a song? Because the repetition helps us to learn. Uh, I, I looked it up online last night. There's a lot of really great research on how we learn and things that can help us learn more effectively. And repetition is an amazing aspect of learning. Okay, so when you read bedtime stories to your kids or your grandkids and they want to read the same story over and over and over, there's actually value and power in that. They're actually grabbing onto bigger words that might be in there. That with the repetition, they grab a hold of those and the meaning goes deeper and deeper. It's really a powerful learning tool. So, uh, good night, moon. I mean, well, there's three or four that our kids, when they were young, I can still probably do, if you got me started... I could probably do the whole book pretty much from memory. That's okay. Learning is a powerful thing. Repetition helps. So God has to be the best teacher in the universe. Amen? Amen. So do you suppose God uses repetition to help us learn? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he sure does. Paul thought so. Paul repeated things an awful lot. He repeated things when he was verbally teaching people as he went from city to city. And then when he wrote letters back to them, he'd say, now, remember when I told you this? Remember when I wrote this to you? Remember when I taught you this? He was always repetition, repetition. And with repetition, the learning gets uh, more solid. Uh, we can uh, grab a hold of it more quickly. So I was looking online, the learning, there's, there's so much power in that. It helps the learning become more uh, grabbable for us more quickly. We can re retrieve it ourselves and use it. So that's what Paul is doing. Today he's going to um, do some repeating and reviewing for us and for the Thessalonians, and then he's going to introduce something new to them, something they hadn't heard before in the teaching. It's exciting stuff. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning verse 1. Now, much like I, when I preach sometimes, Paul says, finally then, brothers, he's really not, he's not, he's not finishing, he's close. Well, closer, but uh, don't put a clock on it. It says, finally then, brothers, we'd add sisters as an inclu inclusive word. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, what's he saying? We shared this with you in person. When we were there those three months, we taught you this, but I'm going to remind you of it here in this letter. So here we go. We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so, say it with me, more and more. So sometimes, I mean, 
we, do we get bored with repetition? You can get bored with repetition, so we have to be careful how we use it. But Paul says here, what's the key to this repetition? He says, when we were with you, we brought you the gospel, we helped you get saved in the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we taught you how to walk to please God. Now, they didn't have cars back then. Their fastest mode of transportation was a horse. So, so you use this everyday life thing. He says, we taught you how to walk with God. We still use that today. It's still a worthwhile thing for us today. We need to know not just about how to get saved in Jesus and think about the cross once in a while. We need to know how to walk with God in everyday life, how to walk with Jesus, how to have relationship with him so he can help us with the hard things. Yes. So he can encourage and, and give us joy in things. Yes. So we can learn how to please him. Isn't that what Paul says here? How, to, how you ought to walk and to please God. We want to walk in a manner that is pleasing to God, blesses him, and then has a witness to the world around us. Amen? So one of the things that's, that we're living in in our culture today, fewer and fewer people have any exposure to the Bible whatsoever. Fewer and fewer people have exposure to Christians who have a clue what's in the Bible. Fewer and fewer people have exposure to Christians who know what's in the Bible who are actually walking in obedience to it or trying to. So, so the witness that the people in America, anyway, are experiencing the, the, the amount of that witness and the depth and clarity of that witness has declined astronomically in the last 30, 40, 50 years. This is a big deal. Paul says that as you receive from us how, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, he says, you're doing it, good job, praise the Lord. And he says, do what? Don't get bored with it. Don't walk away from it. Here's what you do with it. Do it more and more. Here's what he's talking about. He's going to highlight three basic areas of reminding them. These are the areas we're reminding you, walk with God, please God, do it God's way. Very first way, for us in our culture, in America, in our world, we're like, this is first, it makes sense to us. Here we go, verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So this instruction, is, is it Paul's personal preference? Does it come out of Paul's brain? Where does it come from? Where does this instruction come from? From Jesus himself, from God himself. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, verse three. Say with me out loud. For this is the will of God. Oh, do you get excited when you hear that? Because we're always asking, oh, what is God's will for my life? Well, there's a lot of different aspects of that, but here's one of them right here. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Everybody say, woohoo! Yeah. Do you know what it is? Okay, sanctification. The root word is sanctify. That means holy. Sanctification is the process of being made more and more holy. Now, this sanctification, is, uh, the, got a lot of things God does are, are hard for us to grab a hold of, and sanctification is one of them. So we talked about last week, Paul talked about last week. When you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you get saved, you believe what he did for you on the cross, then Jesus makes you blameless and holy. Say that with me. Blameless and holy. And then say, wow. Okay. 
that in that moment when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you allow his sacrifice on the cross to be applied to your life, you are sanctified, done, delivered, boom. You've got the blood of Jesus over your whole life. But then there's, so it's, it was so it's a huge, powerful thing in the moment accomplished. But then it continues to go on every day. Am I more like Jesus than I was 20 years ago? I could testify that I am. Am I perfect in that? Well, yeah, you know, sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back, and you know, we're, we're, we're human creatures, right? But there is a process, there's a growing, becoming more and more. What does Paul say? You've, you, you're doing this, you're walking with the Lord, do it more and more. Become more and more like Jesus. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, sanctification to make us more and more like Christ. This is the will of God. Uh, did, did, did we forget that? This, say with me, this is the will of God. This is God's desire. That we become, get more and more sanctified through life. And he's going to talk about one of the primary areas where sanctification, God wants to take place. It's not uncom- it's uncomfortable. It's not our favorite place but the Bible's all over it. God talks about it over and over, from the Old Testament all the way through the New. Paul says, I taught you about it. And he says, I'm going to remind you of a few things as you're walking with God to do more and more. And the very first thing we're going to talk about is sexuality. And you're like, ah, can't we talk about something else? Sure we could. We do all the time. Lots of things covered in the Bible. But... It's a huge aspect of our physical experience and being, amen? And God gave it to us as a blessing and to populate the earth and to make lots of more people that can love the Lord and have heavenly, wonderful experience with Him. That's all God's design. It's a huge thing. And it's so important and such a blessing from God that what does the enemy target? He targets that huge, wonderful blessing from God because He wants to blow it up. How's He doing? So here we go, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You're becoming more and more holy, more and more like Jesus in this one area of life, that you abstain, say that with me, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, We're really big on abstaining, aren't we? we? We love abstaining. Abstaining usually is a hard thing. Abstaining usually means giving up, saying no to, walking away from something we would really like to have, experience, or enjoy. Abstaining means saying no to something you would like to have. So I got some food allergies and stuff. (laughs) I really hate abstaining from the things that my body doesn't react well to. Because I love chocolate, but I got a, a milk problem and 90% 90% of chocolate has what in it? So I have a problem. I don't abstain from chocolate very well. To my own detriment. Abstaining is saying no to something you'd really like to have. Sexually, usually, it's something that we're not supposed to have. So sexual immorality, what is that? It's a great Bible word that covers all the bases. And there's a lot of bases. 
that are outside the approved area. Amen? So it's easier to say, here's, here's where it works. Here's where it pleases God. Here's where sanctification really functions. Man, woman, married, in marriage, that's where it works. Okay? Everything outside of that, all the different menageries, all the different approaches, um, we're, in, we're engaged, so it's okay. No, it's not. Uh, we're thinking about getting engaged. That's not cool. Uh, within marriage. So waiting for the wedding day. I just saw a thing on YouTube the other day, and it was um, a, a little girl asked her mom why brides wear white dresses. Her answer had nothing to do with the truth of the reality. She said it was because uh, white is a happy color and brides are, it's their happiest day of their lives. And I'm going, she probably, mom probably didn't know we wear white because the ideas from scriptures that we've waited, we're presenting ourselves as a spotless bride like the church does to Christ, but that we've waited, we've held, kept ourselves, we've abstained from sexual relationship, we've kept ourselves both, not just the bride, say, say glory to God, both, but in our culture, you know, because, anyway, bride wears white because that's a statement of purity and waiting for the wedding night and the husband is the the fiance the bridegroom is supposed to have guarded and protected that purity with his own purity until the wedding night this is god's design now i know what does the world in general the culture around us think about this design of god for human sexuality thinks it's unachievable thinks it's ridiculous and thinks it's a laugh when I bring it up in the jail Bible study, I get open laughter. They don't know that it's even a concept. So here's what Paul says, verse 3. For this is the will of God, the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, homosexuality fails the test here. Sex uh, outside of marriage, uh, going together, living together, even engaged, God says, wait, keep it holy, abstain, wait. Um, after marriage, relations with somebody else, no, not cool. We call that adultery. That's a specially powerful word. Okay? None of those things work. We, we, Kevin read it from Mark chapter 10 this morning. What did Jesus say about divorce? He said, God gives the original husband and wife a bond. The two become one flesh, and God places a bond there. God says, when you do, if you divorce and you marry somebody else, the legal system says you're okay, you're cool, and that's a valid marriage. But God says, but in my eyes, you're committing adultery because I gave you a bond with the first husband and wife, and the vow was until how long? Until death. And you say, can anybody achieve that? Well, yeah, it's possible. It's, it's kind of, I don't want to say rare, doesn't happen an awful lot. Amen. And so we celebrate. We have couples here at Dell that have been married 50, 60 more years. We say, glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord for such a witness that it can be accomplished. And we say, glory. Okay? So we know it can be done. So now this is the law. I've been speaking to you the law. And as you hear the law, you go, wow, who can accomplish that? Well, we could even go deeper with the law, right? What did Jesus say in the, in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, you know what? 
you've never committed adultery with another person in actual physical act? He says, but if you've ever thought about having sex with somebody else, in your mind, you committed adultery, and you go, seriously. Yeah, he was serious. So that's the law. How many have perfectly kept the law in this regard? I'm only raising my hand as an example. I don't see any hands, and my, my personal hand is not up. What do you do with that? Well, that's why we really love what Jesus did for us on the cross, amen? That's where our sins were paid for. That's where we receive grace and mercy and cleansing and help in time of need. And we need help from the Holy Spirit to grow in sanctification in this regard. Say hallelujah. Okay, so all this is what Paul's talking about. Paul said, I taught you this. I gave this all to you. He says, this is the deal. Verse three. For, I know we're here forever, but this is the foundational. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now that passage there is really challenging to translate from the Greek into the English. We wrestle with it. Um, there's an approach to it that I, I personally like a little bit better. It would sound like this that each one of you know how to live with his wife in holiness and honor, to live with his wife in a wholesome marriage. Paul, say, Paul says, all sexual immorality is wrong, it's sinful, it's a mess, and God judges it. And he says, here's the antidote to sexual immorality. Have a wholesome marriage. Everybody say, hallelujah. hallelujah. There is a place for wonderful expression of God's great design for sexuality. He says, have a wholesome marriage and have a wonderful time with it. Say, awesome. All right? That's the antidote. Have a wholesome marriage. Keep marriage in holiness and honor. Verse 5, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, like when I, the first time I introduced this is like 20 years ago, jail Bible study, it came up and I presented God's design for sexuality. 20 people in there, they all busted out laughing. They thought I was joking. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not, they didn't know God. They didn't know God's design or plan. They were blown away. Verse six, that no one transgress because when we do, when we participate in sexual immorality of all the different kinds, we do something not just to God and his word. We wrong our brothers and sisters in this matter. We're doing harm to somebody else. If I'm having relations with some other, some other gal and then we break it off and stuff, what have I done? The man who will eventually marry her, I've taken from him. I've taken from her. It's so that sin, it, the Bible says there's no sin like sexual sin. It's a different animal. It impacts other people and it keeps on impacting beyond what we ever think about in the moment. So verse six, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Does this sexual morality, does it matter? Does it matter to God? Does God act on it and do something about it? We are messing with the Lord when we mess with his design for morality. God will deal with us. 
He is. Look at our culture. Is he dealing with our nation? Wow. Paul says, I solemnly warned you. Verse 7, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. So when God calls us, when you, come to, when you come to Jesus and you come to the teaching about God and purity and holiness and sanctification, you realize that, whoa, what I was doing and thinking and believing back here, that's a mess. God's calling me to this. God's calling me to what the people in the jail Bible study were laughing about. He's calling me to that. Yes, he is. It's a whole new life. It's a whole new way of walking. It's a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new way of interacting with other people. Say, glory. And we stand out. Whoever dis... Okay, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in wholeness. He has called us out of impurity into a holy way of living and walking with the Lord. Verse 8. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now, I could go on for another half an hour, and I'm seeing I'm going pretty long already. I'm going, but understand this. Churches, seminaries, and pastors are blowing this off. Sexual, sexual morality, they're going... Oh, but we want you to feel welcome. We want you to be welcome in this place. We want you to know that you're loved. We want you to know that Jesus loves you. So we're ignoring all of God's holy truth about sexual morality. We are doing them no favors. In fact, the opposite. We are commending them in their sin. We are handing them over to an avenger of holiness. It's devastating what we're doing. And not just with homosexuality and transgender and the alphabet soup and all that stuff, not just that, but with how we're looking the other way, couples, how they treat or don't treat marriage, all that kind of stuff. It's a mess. And when we just go, la, 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 Jesus loves you, we are not helping them with the gospel. Is it fun to be a church that stands on the word of God and tries to hold to the, hold to the line? No. It's not fun. Do we get called names? Holier than thou, prudish, this, that, judgmental, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah, we get called names. To stand on the truth and do it in love, is that an easy thing? No. Are we perfect in this area ourselves? We established no. I can't walk around beating people with signs. I need to come alongside them, humbly share the truth, share my own struggles and failures with it, bring them to the cross alongside me. That's where we need to be. So verse nine. So his whole first thing is sexual purity. The whole thing. The second one, verse nine. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Jesus himself did it, told the disciples, love one another as I have loved you. This is a big deal, Jesus said. At the Last Supper, right before he died on the cross, what's one of the big things he pushed? Jesus went over and over and over it, repetition. Love one another. Quit fighting over who's the greatest and who's gonna be my vice president in the kingdom. Love each other with servant hearts. So Paul says, even God has taught you about this. So keep on doing it. Verse 10. 
For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. You're doing a good job with loving each other. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. What do we need to focus on? We heard it last week. Love one another more and more. To aspire to live quietly. Here's the third grouping. To aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. And you go, what? Well, he's speaking into a specific community situation, right? Apparently, there were, there were rabble-rousing. They were, they were loud and boisterous and in your face. And he says, you know what? Back off. That's not serving the cause of Christ in your town. He says, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs. Don't be busybody sticking your nose into other people's stuff so you can share it and gospel about it and stir up the town. He says, don't be doing that. Mind your own business. Another way to put that positive way is make sure you're building your own family in Christ. When you focus on that, you have less time to be worrying about what other folks are doing. And to work with your hands. There were some folks who, um, they received gifts. When times were hard, gifts came in from outside of town to help them. And they're like, sweet, this feels kind of good. I think I'll sit on the couch for a few months and just let other people take care of me. Paul says, get off the couch. Work with your hands. As we instructed you, verse 12, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be, say with me, be dependent on no one. We are raising a culture of dependence upon the government to our own horrible detriment. We need need some first Thessalonians in America today. Get off the couch Work with your hands if you have to. Work with your hands. There, it's a glorified thing. God designed us for it. In the garden, he said, do it. Take care of the garden. Our farmers, they're closer to God than almost any other occupation on the planet. Work with your hands and be dependent on no one. Get off the couch. Get to work. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. Now, new territory. So he had three things to remind him about. Sexual purity, loving one another in servant love, and then living in the community in a way that that, uh, you take care of yourself, you're not dependent on others, you're not just on the couch saying, take care of me. That's not a witness for Christ. Verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who already died. Uninformed, see, this is a new teaching. Paul hadn't shared this with him. We don't know why for sure. It's possible that this revelation came to Paul after he left Thessalonica. But this is new material. I'd be saying new material. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, who've already died in Christ, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope, who have no hope for eternity. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Christ is risen! Since we believe that, again so, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So understand this. When Jesus comes back in the clouds to take us out of here, we commonly call that the rapture. When he comes to do that, he's going to bring the folks who have already died and are with him in spirit. He's going to bring them along for the ride, and he's going to match them up to their new resurrected bodies in the clouds to meet him with new bodies in the clouds. So let me look look at this again. Verse 14, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, 
Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. They've already died in Jesus. He's going to bring those along with him. Verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Where did Paul get this teaching from? Directly from Jesus. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So if Jesus came right now in the clouds, those folks would go before us out there in the cemetery. The saved ones would go before us and then we would go up right up after them. But they get to go first. Verse 16, for the Lord himself, Jesus Christ himself, will descend from heaven with the cry of command. Can you... I can't wait to hear the voice of Jesus from the cloud. Cry, and the command is going to be to these folks out here. It's going to be kind of like when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. It's going to be kind of like that. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. We don't know if it's going to be Michael or Gabriel. I go back and forth between which one I think it's going to be. Probably Gabriel, but it could be Michael. With the voice of an archangel along with Jesus and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the whole world's going to hear it and the whole world's going to see him at the same time. Why does he need to blow a trumpet and make all this noise? Because half the world's going to be in darkness and asleep, amen? They're going to have to be awakened and they're going to see Jesus in his glory and say, well, how are people on the other side of the planet going to see him? He's Jesus. He can do that. With the sound of the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. And we get to watch them. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. I don't know what you should, you should all say whatever you want to say to that. I'm just going to be like, wow, glory, can't wait. It's going to be so amazing. Now, I want you to say this last phrase of me, and so we will, say it all together in unison, and so we will always be with the Lord. This is the punchline of the whole Bible. This is the purpose of God, that we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So here's the deal. In, in this moment, Paul is just teaching specifically about when we get taken out of here, the rapture. We studied Revelation, all the other prophecies and stuff. In this moment, when God does that, he takes all the folks out there up to meet him, takes all of us alive up to meet him, to be with him always and forever. Why does God do that? Because in that moment, when, we're all, when all of his children are safe with him in the clouds on our way to heaven then God pours out his wrath on all those who have left behind because they have rejected him. And that's when God's wrath is poured out and everything gets brought to a judgment finale. And then we get new heaven, new earth, and all those glorious things. But that's the moment Paul's talking about. But he doesn't want us to be worried about the people who have already passed away. They were worried. He says, no, 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 no. Paul said in Philippians 1, he said, 
He says, I wrestle with whether to stay here or go on and be with the Lord. Because that's what he describes it. He says, when I die, I'm going to be with the Lord. Your loved ones in Christ, they are with the Lord. They don't have their resurrection bodies yet. They'll get that at the rapture. But they are with the Lord in his presence and his care. So Paul says, be encouraged. Everybody say hallelujah. hallelujah. I feel encouraged. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, Paul, Paul knew what it was like. He's saying, uh, you need some help walking with the Lord, don't you? Yes, we do, Lord. 